The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we rejoice with some of the words of that last song, You Have Sent Our Savior. The great need that we all face, you have acted to meet. And we say, thank you, praise you. And then we, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come again. Come again for the second time to, to claim us, your bride, and to set the world all right. We also pray that you would come now into this room. Of course, you are you're here, but we pray, come in a different and a unique and a powerful way, we ask you to come and be here in our midst. Father, it is our hope that Jesus would be here now, occupying his rightful throne in the middle of his church, that he would reign here, that he would reign here to his honor and to our, our joy. That he would reign and communicate to us truth for, for our clear thinking and understanding. For the setting right of our lives here now in the present. That we would be a little more of what we're supposed to be. Would you do that this morning? Father, Son, and Spirit, would you come and occupy this place? Occupy our hearts. Hold us to yourself. Change us. Spirit of God, would you make the word clear? Would you illumine it so we would understand who this Jesus, our Savior, is? For some here, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to see it for the first time. Folks among us who don't know Christ personally, Spirit of God, work in their hearts, whether they're young or old, boys or girls, men or women here for the first time or or the hundredth or the thousandth time. For those of us here who know Him, Lord, Lord Spirit, would You open our eyes to Him and cause us to rest in Him and hold fast to Him and trust this Gospel and be changed by it today. Help us with that. Spirit, would You show us Christ you paint for us the gospel? And particularly from this passage, would you turn our minds to think about the resurrection? This morning and in coming weeks, to help us to think about the resurrection that has happened and that will happen for us. To rest in that and to rejoice in it. Help us with that spirit, I pray. So would you build your church this morning for the glory of Christ here and everywhere and for the good of us, your people. And it is in his name that we pray it. Amen. As we turn our attention this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we are beginning a section that feels a little bit like a conclusion, but yet turns into another subsection of this book. We're, we're kind of moving towards the end, but we're not there quite yet. Paul has quite a bit to say about the resurrection coming up in the, this week and into the following weeks. 
And to do that, he's going to begin that whole discussion by talking about the gospel, which of course includes the resurrection. We've come to this chapter after spending a number of weeks looking at Paul's teaching about what the body of Christ is, instructing us that we all are, are a people, we are a, a unit, we're all a, a single body, and we are all uniquely spiritually gifted by God and are to use those gifts together in love for the sake of the building up of the body, the sake of the maturing of the whole. Essentially, that's chapters 12 through 14. Written the church to correct some errors that they had going on there. What comes out of that is, is that we are a body with gifts and we are to desire all those gifts, particularly the gift of prophecy and others like it that speak to the mind for the building up of the body. And that all takes place only in and among Christians. People who have been saved by the wisdom and the power of God that was so prominent in the early chapters of this letter. Recall that Paul began emphasizing very clearly that which he said he, when he came to Corinth, he knew only Christ and Him crucified. And in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, proclaimed that Christ and Him crucified and saw a church formed and people converted. God in power brought sight to blind eyes and brought dead people back to life, spiritually speaking. So we all are, spiritually, we're all blind and dead until God in power awakens, illumines, and He created a church. That was all done by the gospel. And Paul said that is what is central. It's what's at the foundation of what a church is, what Christians are. And so I know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. And then here in chapter 15 he says, now let me come back to that. 15.1, let me remind you of the gospel. Let me make it known again. That's what we're going to be looking at today. The gospel, again. Heavily emphasized in the beginning, and now he comes back to it at the end, but he's got a kind of a purpose that he brings it up here. So when I read the passage, though I'm going to be focusing on verses 1 to 11, I'm going to read verse 12 to kind of help set up what the context of these verses are. He's, he's got a, a reason that he's going to address the gospel, which literally means good news. The word means. We're going to look at the good news today while setting ourselves up for a little bit more that's to come. So let me read chapter 15, verses 1 to 12, and make a couple comments on it before I open up the, the passage itself. 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 1 Corinthians 15. That's up there in verse 12 because it helps us to see that the first 11 verses are, are Paul addressing the gospel, but not just in the abstract. There's a context. He's speaking to Corinth because he has heard through some source, it doesn't seem that they wrote him about this, it seems that somebody told him through the grapevine, that there are actually some people in Corinth who are denying the resurrection. And it's evidently a big enough problem, there evidently weren't enough leaders there on the spot who could address this, that Paul needs to, to step in and correct the significant error. Maybe it comes, from, we, we don't know, but maybe it comes from the fact that them thinking themselves to be spiritual people and viewing the physical as kind of inferior... They couldn't fathom a spiritual connection to God that then has this, this ugly, nasty body tacked on, especially the body that has died. And as you read through here, the resurrection of the dead, it would strike them in their language as, to put it in English, the resurrection of corpses. Or maybe to put a little point out, the resurrection of cadavers. We, we hear that and we say, ooh, that's kind of different than just dead people. We kind of detach corpses and cadavers. We don't think of them as people anymore. And you're telling me that they're going to be raised? I don't know about that. Spiritually, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm spiritually I can see joined to God, but I don't know about the physical resurrection. And some were saying, that doesn't happen. And Paul says, that's not possible. The resurrection is part and parcel of Christianity. I need to speak to this. And so he does. And he begins that with describing the gospel and explaining how the resurrection is in the gospel. And if it's not in the gospel, then if you look ahead a little bit, you see verse 14. And if Christ is not raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Or verse 17, if the dead is not, are not raised, then you are still in your sins. This is a critical issue. So he's going to address the fact the resurrection is real. And it's going to start with the gospel and the resurrection of Christ. So that's where we're, we're headed this morning. We're a piece of what's going to become a larger conversation. We'll begin with the gospel. And, and the main idea from these 11 verses that I'll be focusing on is, is just this. My main point for this morning. God has raised Christ to life. And he will do the same for all who believe. God has raised Christ to life, and He will do the same for all who believe. That's the message of this passage, and it's the message of the gospel. You can develop it by making two observations. Here's the first one. And as I say this, I realize that for many of us here this morning, a lot of this is pretty clear to you. Well, then take this as an opportunity to have the gospel preached to you again. This is what we live on. We should think like Paul does, I want to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified, which of course means I know a whole bunch of other things too, but everything comes back to Christ and Him crucified. 
It's central to me. It's not something that I got that, check it off, and move on. So this morning I preached the gospel to you again. And for some of you it's, it's very familiar. Well, take it in. And maybe we'll come eventually to some things that would be particularly helpful to you. But some here, maybe this is the first time for you to ever seriously consider this. And may God open your eyes to it. So the first observation. The gospel is news about Christ's death and his resurrection from the dead. The gospel is news about Christ's death and his resurrection from the dead. Both. Right away, verse 1, Paul comes back to the gospel. He's been writing about all these very very focused details about how church should function, what we should do when we gather together. And he says, now, let me bring this up again. Let me remind you of the gospel. So what is it? Well, still in verse 1, it is a message. This might seem like a fine point. Let me develop this a little bit. The gospel is a message. It's not a proscription or a prescription. Prescription. It's not telling you what to do. It's telling you about something that's been done. It's a message. Preached, Paul says. Proclaimed. Announced. Like when you sit down and you watch the news, you read a newspaper, you're sitting in front of the television and what's coming out of you to, to you is the news. Information, in very rare circumstances, you might be on the news, but most of the time you're not. And what you're getting is information about what other people have done somewhere else at some other time. Now, I realize you could be on the news, it could be a live report about what's going on right now, but usually it's about, this happened yesterday in Egypt. Let me show you the pictures, let me explain it to you. It's news about someone else's activity, some other place, some other time coming to you. And in this particular case, God is the broadcaster who wants to make sure that you, that everybody hears this, knows it. News. It's proclaiming something. Well, how do you do that? Well, verse 3. Paul is disseminating it. Paul says, I received something from somewhere else, and then I delivered it to you, and you received it, and on through the ages, we have received it, and we pass it on to someone else. God's using people. In this case, Paul delivered it. Paul's God's agent. But we need to be really clear. Really, it's God who's the broadcaster. Look down at verse 10. It's the grace of God that made all this happen. Paul talks about how he doesn't deserve to be any of this. He's a persecutor of the church. But God intervened. We could think of the Damascus Road where God stepped in and graciously saved him. But more than that, made him an apostle. And sent him out with this message and said, deliver it everywhere. And Paul exercised extreme diligence and extreme care all throughout the Mediterranean world, making this message known. He was amazing in his diligence and amazing in his sacrifice. But hold on, because Paul says, actually, it wasn't me, not I, the grace of God with me. So it wasn't Paul that was amazing in his diligence and amazing in his sacrifice and amazing in his commitment. It was God and God's grace that was amazing in making sure this message got there. And he used a man and he empowered a man, sure, 
but God is the one. And we need to be really clear about that, lest we take on ourselves too much responsibility, too much pride, and so that we see and worship this God who is extremely concerned that this message be known. Do you realize you would not know it if God had not determined to broadcast it to you and to say into your life and into your mind in a way that you get it, news! Listen! Attention! I've got something to tell you! That's the grace of God. The fact that you even know this, there are billions of people on earth who do not know this. Some of them will know it tomorrow and the day after because God is always on the move. But you are a privileged people by the grace of God. You know it. And maybe even today for the first time are hearing it. Do not despise that grace from God. He makes known a message to you. So what is it? He sketches it out again in verses 3 and 4. And very brief details there. I mean, it's a sentence. I delivered to you, I laid out before you something that is of utmost importance. What we're dealing with here is, is a message that is, is critical. It is the news of all time. The message that the long-promised Christ died for our sins, that this dead Christ was then buried, he was really dead, and then that this dead Christ was raised back to life on the third day. All of it in accordance with the Scriptures, as he says twice. That's just a sentence, but that is news. God, for ages and ages past, foretold and promised that he would one day intervene in this world and sacrifice, that he would intervene, that he would sacrifice for our sins. We can think of how he spoke that message constantly in the sacrificial system, setting up a model how there needs to be a perfect, spotless lamb to remove sin. We can think of how he told that message specifically in prophecy. Isaiah 53, I will send my son, and when he comes... He will be wounded for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. God told us in the Scriptures. It is the wisdom and the power of God. And it is what God did. This is a message about what God did, not what we do. Not telling us, here's what you should do to fix things. He sent his son to die for our sins, which is not to show how bad our sins are or how, how angry God is with them or, or to fix the, the leftover after we've cleaned up part of our wickedness. Not a word about anything we do here. We stand I use the word wickedness, a hard word to kind of say in here. That's who we are from birth. The Bible calls us that and says we are by nature from birth bent against him lawbreakers. 
God has said, here is what I require. And we, in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds, constantly veer away. Both in what we do, doing and thinking and saying and wanting and hoping what we shouldn't, or in what we don't do. Not thinking and not doing and not hoping for and not loving what we should. He said, love us above, love me above everything else in our lives, and we don't. We are breakers of God's law, recipients of his just and good wrath. It is good of God to crush evil. We always want him to eliminate evil, just not the evil in me. We want to eliminate the evil that I suffer under. The problem is the evil lives in here. And he is a holy God. And what comes from a holy God against evil is wrath and judgment. But news. What the angels were proclaiming in Bethlehem that night is that God intervened to address that problem and to send one who would die for our sins, for your sins. When you were utterly powerless, God intervened and in grace said, I will address the problem. He died to take on Himself the punishment that is due to us You have to look at that and may God move in your hearts that you would look at that and say, not, uh, of course, Steve, I know, but but say, oh my word, the glory of God. Behold His love to you, His mercy to you. Because He need not do it, but He did. News. Christ died for our, for your Sins. And he was dead, dead, dead when he died. They put him in a grave. And they sealed it with a stone. And they walked away. And three days later, God raised him back to life. Which is the reason that Paul's going into this, as I've already mentioned. part and parcel of the message and its essentials. We'll come to in just a second. But what he's doing in verses 5 to 8 is saying, and it really happened. Everybody saw it. Seems that he's listing them in some order there. He's got Peter, who's kind of the, the chief, and then he's got the 12, a generic term for the leadership, and then the 500, the nameless body, and then the apostles, those who would go out and proclaim it. This is what the church saw. This is what the church believes. This is what the church proclaims. That this dead Christ was raised. Which has to be the case. Because without an empty tomb, without the resurrection of Christ, the first part of that doesn't work. Without an empty tomb... We find that, as he says in 17, we're still in our sins because we believed in a false hope, a bit like somebody trying to settle a debt with a check that bounces. Put yourself in a situation. Maybe you're a a business person or some sort of a a laborer, or maybe you just sell some large ticket item, sell your car or something. There's a debt owed. You sell your car, and the person says, here, I will pay this debt with this check. And if it's a regular check, you're wise to hold on to the keys. Why? 
Because you've got to wait a day or two to find out if the check clears. People can say anything, but you take that check to the bank, and the bank is going to say, now hold on just a second, we've got to wait a day or two perhaps. We've got to talk to this other bank and make sure that there's something to back that up, that it actually is not just a piece of paper with a claim, but there's actually substance to it, and that it is a payment of the debt. Wait a day or two, and hopefully at the end of the day, it's, yep, clears, now you can use that money, the debt is discharged, you give them the keys, and everybody's happy. But, of course, people say anything, don't they? And in the spiritual realm, people say everything. There are 10,000 religions in the world. Here's what you should do to satisfy God in our religion. And here's what you should do over here. We say these things, and we're a, we're a difficult, strenuous religion. We've got a long list. And we're an easy religion. We've got a short list. If we're a religion that's about you, you'd make your own list. But everybody's got their own thing that they claim. Some people even write out a list of things to do and call it the gospel and say, obey the gospel and you'll be right with God. The fact that they use that term attached to a list does not redefine the word gospel. This is the gospel. Not about any list that you are to do, but a message about what God has done. And the fact that the tomb is empty proves it. People say anything, but what the empty tomb is, is God saying, as payer and payee and banker standing between the two, I have a debt that I am owed, and I, glory, I will pay it. And when it clears, I render the verdict, debt discharged, go free. The tomb itself, a historic fact, historical fact, the empty tomb itself proves that this message is the only one. The only message about what God accepts. 500 plus people saw this dead, dead, dead man Alive again. 500 plus people. The tomb sat empty in the city where the people who had the most to gain by him still being in it lived and worked right down the street. This would have been simple to address. But it never was addressed because the tomb was, in fact, empty, and Jesus lived. Evidence from God that this message, this news, is true. Christ died for our sins. Which is news, but it is good news, Because of what that means. That's the second point. The gospel is good news because by it, God saves from death all who believe. It's not just news. It's good news. And that's because of what it does. Saves from death all who believe. This is the tool, this this message 
is the tool that God uses to save. Not, not your work, Christ's. And in verse 1, he says, The gospel I preached, which you received, accepted, the gospel in which you stand, I'm going I'm to come back to the, the standing in a minute, the gospel by which you are being saved. There's the connection. The gospel saves. The message of Christ crucified, of Christ buried, of Christ raised, that's the gospel, that's what saves. And nothing in that is about anything that I am to do. And, and I realize that that may, depending on where you're coming from, that may upset some of the apple carts in your culture or your background. It may be a, a message that is not easy to receive because you've been told something different. But the gospel itself in the Bible is not about what you do. It's about what God does. What does he save from? Well, resurrection from the dead indicates salvation from death. Salvation from death to life. And that takes us all the way back to the first sin in the Garden of Eden. If you know the story, it's page 2, maybe page 3 of your Bible. In the very beginning, God made the earth, and He made people, and it was all good when He made it that way. Something happens, page 2, maybe page 3 of your Bible, where people say, I have a better idea, in response to a temptation, say, I have a better idea, I'm going to go a different way. And at that moment, when we... And Adam and Eve, our forefathers, our, four, our ancestors, when, when they stepped away from God to go a different way, as an old song says, in that moment, they and all their unborn children, us, died. In a moment, all spiritually died because of who God is. God himself is life. God himself in his very being is all that life consists of. Every good thing you can conceive of is what it is, is good because of God. Pick anything, love, justice, mercy, all because of God, those things exist. All of it the nature of God is life. He's what sustains our hearts and our souls. And if we step away from that, we step away from all good. That's what happened. In a moment, spiritually severed from it. Which initiated a physical death also. In that moment, their bodies began to die and all of us were born dying. We live dying. Because... This world that we live in, while it's still fallen, it has grace from God in it. Common grace is here in this world. And God says, I will not let rebels continue to experience my goodness forever. I'm going to remove them from it, cut them off even from the earth with its little bit of good in it. We spiritually die, and because of that, we physically die. And we should stop and just think about that for a minute. 
we, particularly in, in our Western culture, we separate ourselves several degrees from death. We use, we refer to it in euphemism, passed away. We have special businesses that deal with all these things and we, we can avoid them. It's sometimes considered rude to talk about this so directly, but we need to be direct about it and get this. We all are dying. As we sit here, we're dying. Some of us eat well, some of us exercise, some of us don't. In the end, it matters not a bit. We're all dying. We're all going to be laid out flat, dead. This is one of the greatest tragedies of our existence. Jesus himself wept at the tomb of a man he knew he was going to bring back to life as he looks at that and says, something is wrong here. There's a tragedy present. Death. We do a decent job, especially when we're young, most of us, of avoiding the idea, but as we get older, it begins to creep in, doesn't it? Loved ones and family members and spouses and parents We begin to see death appearing. And it's knocking at all of our doors all the time, every single day. Death is real. Sometimes it comes in in a moment in a great tragedy, but it comes to all of us, does it not? And God looks at His creation which He made to be life. Because He is life, and He wanted His creation to reflect all of His goodness and all of His glory forever. He looks at His creation with death in it as a result of sin and says, I graciously, gloriously, I am going to address that and fix it. I'm going to overcome that great enemy of my people. What a God! This is good news that He has intervened in the world to conquer death. And I don't mean just spiritually. To physically conquer death. Now, there's a good bit of theology wrapped up in all that, but don't miss these two points here. The first point... There is an offer laid on the table, and some of us here perhaps this morning have never taken it. There is an offer on the table from a gracious and loving God to address your fatal problem. I'm speaking earnestly here because there is earnestness in the moment here. You have no idea if you're going to live through the day. And if you physically live through the day or through the next day or the day after that, 
you still sit here spiritually dead and know that the physical death is coming. The wrath of God remains on you and will be exercised. But He right now, today, even today, is laying something on the table in front of you by His grace for your good. May the Spirit open your eyes and you would see it. And I'm speaking here to perhaps people who are new, perhaps people who have been here forever. I'm speaking here to children also. I don't think I've said anything too complicated to understand. Maybe I said too quickly, so let me slow it down. If you're 10 or 15 or 20, I'm talking to you. You are not saved because your parents are. You are not. God is dealing with you personally, individually, laying an an offer to you right in front of you and saying, you, 10-year-old, 15-year-old, 20-year-old, you, if you will believe, which is not just your head, it's trusting in your heart, if you will trust this Jesus for your sins, I will deliver you from death. I will bring you into union with God, into relationship with God like this. And I will give you a glorious physical life forever and ever. I'll say more about that in a second. Whether you're young or whether you're old, the first point is that what, what's presented here is an offer, and i got to be clear, it is the only offer of good news that if you believe, if you trust it, will save you. So obviously the first point is trust it, trust it, trust it, trust it, trust it, and be saved. But the second point is to those of us here who already have, and really it's kind of the same point, just twisted a little bit differently, the same thing to you, believe Notice something in verse 2 where he talks about by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. By which you are being saved. Now there is only one work of salvation from God. So we're not talking, I'm not going to talk about three different salvations. But I'm going to talk about the salvation of God from three different angles. The Bible can talk about the salvation of God as something that is already a done deal. You were saved. It can talk about it as a deal that's coming. You will be saved. And it can talk about it as something that's going on right now. You are being saved. That's the one right here. Are being saved. Maybe think of it like a medical situation, if it helps. Think of an accident where the paramedics come and and save somebody. And they take him or her to the hospital and she stays there for a while being saved or being healed with the object of being completely healed one day in the future. There are holes in that analogy, but maybe that helps you think about it. We should be looking at this and thinking, he's talking about the salvation of God, but emphasizing something right now. But there's something that helps me even right now. Of course, it's about the past and about the future. You can't ever break it apart. But Christian, right now, what does this mean for you? Well, what's he talking about? He's particularly going into the resurrection. 
do you realize, sure you do, no, what I mean is, do you realize, Christian, that you will be raised from the dead? You, you believe that. You have to. If you don't, you're not a Christian. There, there are people who call themselves Christians who have some sort of way of understanding things that eliminates this. And Paul said, that's not the gospel. But if you're a Christian, of course you believe that. But what I'm getting at is, do you actually believe it? Because we live out of our minds. We live out of what is working up here. We are renewed and then transformed. So if you believe that you will be raised, then some life should come out of you. What kind of life? Well, Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians. I already read this morning, actually. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul references again the resurrection and the idea that he knows that he's just a clay pot now, but he's going to be raised with Christ. And so therefore, the light and momentary troubles he has now are nothing compared to the eternal glory that's coming. There, what kind of life should come out of a person who actually believes that he or she will be raised? A life of great sacrifice. A life that doesn't live as if this is the end. But realizes more is coming. And I want to live now in this clay pot for that. This right now needs to be invested for that. So look at your life and ask, do I really believe that? Because I can work backwards and can look at how I'm living and that will tell me what I believe. So let me say it to you. And let it sink in. You have begun a new life right now spiritually. But unless the Lord comes back, you will physically decline and die. And then you will be raised back to life with a new body. More to come on that in the rest of this chapter. With a new body. And with that new body, in a new heaven and new earth, you will see the Lord face to face forever and ever. And there you will also see all others who have died in Christ. Think about it. Your loved one who died in Christ. When you closed the casket, that was not the end. It was not gloriously. You will see him, you will see her again in the presence of the one who is joy. You, you won't be primarily rejoicing in the fact that you see him or her. The two of you together will be rejoicing in him. But you'll be there with this one gloriously. This world is not your home and the loss of this world is not the loss of your life. So much of our, our sin here 
So much of it, I'm tempted to say all, but I haven't thought it all through to make sure that it's all, but a really big piece of it. So much of our sin here is tied to a desire to grab a hold of and hold on to this fleeting life. To gain for myself a little bit of status, a little bit of security, a little bit of comfort. And I feel it running through my fingers and so I want to grab a little more. Let it go. Perhaps I should say, hold it like this. Because some of what God gives you in life, you should hold on to. He's given it to you to hold and to use. But don't grasp it. Grasp tight on the gospel. Which tells you, you have a life that is coming. That is far more than this. For which that life you are to live. And it is not just a spiritual existence. It is a bodily existence. You will be raised physically. And you will live in a physical world. It boggles my mind to think about it. Do you ever think about it? It's part of your creed. It's part of your thinking. It's a part of your living. Christ has been raised. He has begun the resurrection, which includes all who believe in Him. Which means, these two points... That if you're not a Christian, believe. Don't be left out. Believe. And the second point, if you are a Christian, believe. And live like it's actually true. That you have a life that is coming. God has raised Christ from the dead. And he will do the same for all who believe in Him. We'll do the same for all who believe in Him. Let me pray. Gracious Father, and I say You are gracious because I am mindful of the gospel that is Your doing by grace. Thank You for sending Your Son and thank You for proving, for proving that His sacrifice works. It removes the debt. Thank you for opening up to us life again. As we feel life slipping through our fingers, we need not fear it or try to grasp tight of it. We can know that you have a better life coming for us. Thank you for making that clear to us. And I'm going to pray for my friends here. Pray for myself that you would empower us to believe. To not just look on this as news or even to look on it as good or great news, but to draw up close to it and grab it tight and never let go of it. To be affected in the here and now by it. Transformed as my coming new life fills my mind. Make that real, Lord, please, in me and in us. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the salvation that you have provided. And I pray that you would save some here who don't know you. Have your way in us and build up your church, I pray, Lord, for your glory and for our good. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121. 